Well, good morning. I'm going to do a couple things here administratively. <laughs> okay. And one last thing here. Why not? Get to see my face. <laughs> it's cold here, if you can't tell already. Um, and uh, we're just uh, so happy to be able to, to, to do this, even from here, despite not... Uh, Tonight by not being here together, uh, it's so nice to see your faces. There's a really nice setup. We've come a long way. Hey, I think this is like 3.0 now, and the setup here, it's brilliant. It's almost as if I'm, I'm right in just from, front of my screen like you are uh, at home. Um, I'm just going to take one more sip of this tea, and then, uh, and then we can get started. Thanks, Dirk. Well, it's so good to be here. Um, as we're tracking uh, through the Gospel of Mark, I think I've, I don't know about you, but I've, I've forgotten how many weeks we've spent uh, tracking through the book of Mark over the last, um, goes back to even last year. But it's been a nourishing journey, hasn't it? And if you're joining us for the first time, don't worry. It's not like you had to be here for all the other Sundays. Uh, it's, it's each one has been like a meal. Uh, in fact, it's a nice, a nice winter meal, I would say. Um, my favorites, one of my favorites, one of my kids' favorites, too, is uh, soup and bread. Soup and bread, the best, I feel, winter meal you can have. Um, but we're not, in this Mark series, we're not just walking up to the stove, picking up the ladle and, and taking a cheeky sip. Or we're not just cutting off a little end of the, end of the, um, the, the loaf and having a nibble. No, we are, we are dishing up a hearty portion, uh, we're sitting down together, and we're enjoying this meal every bite. And that's the way it's been. Uh, it's been really very nourishing each time, and each week has been so impactful. And I trust that today will be no different. We're going to actually pick up in Mark chapter 11, and I'm going to read uh, with us, or for us, I should say. Um, and it, we're beginning with the 27th verse, Mark 11 27, and then we'll go through to the 12th uh, verse of uh, chapter 12, but let's go. They arrived again in Jerusalem, and while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests, the teacher of the law, teachers of the law, and the elders came to him. By what authority are you doing these things? They asked, and who gave you authority to do this? Well, Jesus replied, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism, was it from heaven or of human origin? Tell me. Well, they discussed it among themselves, and they said, if we say from heaven, he will ask, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, they feared the people, for everyone held that John was really a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. And uh, chapter uh, 12, Jesus then began to speak them in, to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the winepress, and built the watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place, or uh, tenants. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. They sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. 
He had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, They will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him, killed him, and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? Jesus asked. He will come and kill those servants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this passage of Scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Then the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. Let's pray. Father God, we welcome your presence this morning. Father, we, uh, we, we ask that your, your word uh, be a light unto our lives that illuminates the truth and the ultimate authority. Jesus, won't you come, come close this morning, speak to us, and, the, and Spirit, won't you lead us? And may your power be present today. Amen. Okay, well, setting the scene, we're in Jerusalem, we're in the temple, and it's the epicenter of the Jewish nation. And as we heard last week too, momentum is building in this story. Uh, things are getting quite intense. The city is filling up with people because it's Passover week. Many are making the pilgrimage all the way there to celebrate the Passover week. And many of them would know Jesus uh, maybe by personal encounter, in fact, or at least by reputation. And two days prior to this one, Jesus had arrived in Jerusalem to a cheering throng, Hosanna in the highest. And yesterday, the day before this day, uh, Jesus made a bit of a stir, and that's an understatement, by stopping those doing business in the temple courts. Jesus, he overturned tables and he corrected them uh, with a very public display and with sharp words. So you can sense the atmosphere here. The, the holy city, the temple area, they're divided around this man, Jesus. And as we'll see, it sparks so much fear in the religious leaders that they decided Jesus had to be stopped somehow, even killed, if that's what it takes. Well, we see in the opening verses uh, that the, the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, they challenge Jesus and ask him, essentially, who are you and who sent you? Well, first, let's ask you and me, who are these guys? Well, they were, they were a group called the Sanhedrin, 71 men. They were the highest Jewish legal authority, and you could say that they were the power brokers of Israel. They held the government in the palm of their hands, and nothing happened without their say-so. And here, in this passage, they're basically confronting Jesus by asking, who do you think you are? You have come into our city, you've done these things, our domain. These things, verse 28, they're referring to yesterday's events when Jesus interrupted the buying and selling of things in the temple courts. But for us to understand why this was such a big deal for, one, Jesus to do what he did, and two, for these religious leaders to confront him about it, 
we've got to remember something from last Sunday's message about the significance of the temple. It was the heart and soul of Israel. In a way, it was where heaven and earth met, a lighthouse of God's presence, power, and authority. It was not simply a building. It was, and still is, a 35-acre tract of land, arguably the most, <laughs> the most valuable piece of real estate in the world. So the marketplace activities that angered Jesus weren't just a few small corner shops. It was a mega market, generating a massive cash flow for the temple based largely on the exploitation of the poor. And this became the norm for the temple activities in the temple courts and the surrounding areas of that temple land. But on that day, Jesus said to that, the leaders, you have turned this place, the very heart and soul of who we are, into some soulless operation. He's calling out the Sanhedrin. Jesus is looking for a fight. And here we have those very men asking, asking a question intended to trap Jesus. It was a lose-lose scenario for Jesus. If he answers by God's authority, it would be considered blasphemy. That is an insult to God. And then they could have Jesus arrested and put to death. Or if Jesus said that he had come to rescue and restore Israel, then they could have him handed over to the Roman authorities and arrested. So how does Jesus respond? Well, he doesn't fall prey to the Sanhedrin's trap. Instead, he asks them a question of his own and makes their answering it contingent on him answering their question. We see that in verses 29 and 30. And he asks this question about the baptism of John and whether it's from heaven or from man. And the leaders, do they answer? Well, they're stumped. And not because they don't know the answer, but because by this very question, Jesus cuts straight to what they hold most dear. It's not the incredible privilege to be religious, religious leaders in position to point people to know and love God. Instead, sadly, it's their power and their wealth that they hold most dear, all made possible and sustained by the popularity from the people. Mark's account of their deliberation in verses 31 to 33 reveals this. You can see they, they're considering how to answer without angering the crowd, and they realize they have no way of doing so. So we must not forget who else is in this story, the crowd. And it was a big enough crowd to convince the leaders that any answer to Jesus' question would put their reputation, their position, their power at risk. They were afraid. Jesus' popularity was a threat to their popularity. And we see their fear displayed and uh, described by Mark in verse 32 and as well as in the very last, uh, last uh, line of this, this whole passage. They feared the people. Why? Because this is what they held most dear, their popularity and the power that came from it. Now, Jesus isn't here to win an argument today. He's not here to embarrass the Sanhedrin even, and he's not even there to impress the people. Tracking through the book of Mark and the other Gospels, we know that that isn't Jesus' MO. But what is, is to teach the people about himself, about God, 
The window to do this is closing. It wasn't long before this, back in chapter 8 of Mark, that Jesus tells his disciples that he's going to be rejected by these very leaders and ultimately killed. In fact, looking forward in the story, Jesus will be dead within a week. Time is of the essence to teach. So the religious leaders, here they are asking Jesus about a, que- a question about authority. So Jesus goes on to answer them in his own way through the parable that he's about to share. I want to take some time to understand what Jesus is saying in this parable. So let's do that. I'm going to cut right to it. God is the gardener. He built the vineyard. The vineyard is symbolizing Israel. And the tenants or the kings and the religious leaders entrusted to look after the vitality of the vineyard, Israel, over all these years. And the servants whom the gardener, God, sends to collect some of the fruit are the prophets and the servants of God who have been sent to Israel throughout the history of the nation. About this fruit, Michael Eaton has a couple of things to say about it. Is that God is looking for fruitfulness in his people, Israel. He provides enough for us to be fruitful. He, he, he has given them redemption. He has given them his law. He has provided them a system of worship and tabernacle. He's, he's often sent his prophets, and most recently, John the Baptist. And yet, all of this was squandered, skewed, or destroyed. We see that in the parable about how these tenants would uh, abuse, uh, throw out, kill even these servants who have come to collect some of the fruit of the vineyard. Ruthless. John the Baptist, we know from earlier in Mark uh, chapter 6, we read that he was beheaded by King Herod. The last most recent in this line of uh, kings and prophets that have come before Jesus. But then, at last, despite the demise of all those servants that he sent before, the gardener in this parable pulls out all the stops. He sends his own son. He reckons he will be respected. He's the greatest and most reliable of all who serve. Surely, out of respect for the gardener, the tenants will respect his son. Well, by now you can see that the son of the gardener is Jesus. And he is in a category of his own. But he comes to serve God. And he's in line of all those prophets and servants of God who have been sent to Israel throughout the nation's history, who, being recognized as the gardener's very own son in this parable, instead of being honored for who he is, is killed by the tenants and thrown out of the garden in order for them to take over completely, to own the garden for themselves, or so they thought. What the gardener does next is significant. Does he give up? Does he withdraw out of fear for these ruthless tenants? No. He acts in righteous judgment. The death of his son, Jesus, is what motivates this justice. Well within his right, the gardener enacts an an abrupt, a very abrupt 
change in tenancy. tenancy. And the destruction of the tenants equates to the destruction of the Jerusalem and the temple with it that's going to be happening a few decades later in AD 70 by the Romans. Of course, they wouldn't have known that yet, so they only knew and began to understand part of this parable. But the religious leaders already sussed out that this parable was being spoken against them. But yet Jesus, here he is, answering the religious leader's question by illustrating who has true authority. Now, I'd like to point out a few things that are key to this passage. And Pastor David Bisgrove, who, who teams with Pastor Timothy Keller at the Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City, helps to shed light on the truth behind this passage and what it means for us. So in short, there are three things that are revealed. A claim, a threat, and a promise. A claim of ultimate authority, a threat that the claim brings into our lives, and a promise of something marvelous. First, a claim of ultimate authority by Jesus. By unpacking Jesus' parable by now, we see that this claim is clear. Jesus is saying to the religious leaders, I have not come for you to question my authority. I have come to question yours. I am king. Every authority in the world submits itself to me. So that's the claim. But there's a problem. Can I ask a question? Rhetorically, of course. How many of us cringed just a little when we heard that statement? Every authority in the world submits itself to me. I'm sure it's due in part to the fact that we've heard a version of those words from some of history's and today's leaders whose actions and reputations make them anything but leaders we want to follow, let alone submit to. But I would venture to say that the reason those words make our inner cringe meter jump has more to do with our own hearts. Jesus' claim of ultimate authority threatens the way we live our lives. Let me explain with one word. My. My. It's among the first words of toddlers. It features extensively when writing our CVs and social media profiles and posts. It's all about me. What's in it for me? When will my time come? It sounds like the words of a toddler, maybe a teenager. Sure. But aren't adults prone to saying these things too? Maybe the kinds of things sound a little different. My time, my paycheck, my home, career, my success, status, my influence, my legacy. But these things, many of them good things, are not ours. Instead, we're stewarding what is God's. It's all on loan to us. We're not the owners. It's been entrusted to us. And we get to use these things according to God's authority, in joy and freedom to plow it back into and for his kingdom. Now, I'm sure that many of us agree with this notion of stewardship, especially those of us who've been tracking with Jesus for a while. We, we understand the principle but I'm also sure that all of us who understand the statement also agree 
that we forget. We forget at times. For a day, for a week, a decade, maybe longer. And it's in these times of forgetfulness that we perceive Jesus' life-giving claim of ultimate authority as a threat. It's because attitudes, our perspectives, our habits, or a combination of all three turn in on themselves onto us, focusing on us, me, my. We define our days based on what they mean for us how we are impacted for better or worse and lead our lives based on this principle. Selfishness. Not stewardship. We gravitate to selfishness. And oh, how it can take hold. There's a character in the TV series, The Office. His name is Ryan, Ryan Howard. And if you don't know who he is, let me explain. We first meet him as an intern. Uh, he'll do whatever is necessary. Uh, he'll, he'll sit at the phones. He'll do, uh, uh, bring coffee. He'll do whatever is required of him. And he was a calm, confident, but humble young man, and he was the most qualified on the team. He actually held an MBA. He was studying for it and ultimately held it. Uh, and he was, on paper, the most qualified, but the least hardest worker, too. And eventually, somehow... He uh, applied for and was offered the VP job in the big city. And he quickly became full of himself. He turned to excesses, drugs, and ultimately fraud. He went from steward, grateful, humble, to owner, treating life like his own personal amusement park. Ryan thought he could customize his lifestyle to maximize his happiness. Customize his lifestyle to maximize his, his happiness. A no-one-can-tell-me-what-to-do kind of attitude. But it all came crashing down in spectacular fashion, losing his job, broken relationships, conviction of fraud. And despite all this and his repeated attempts to get his life back in order, he continued to slip back into this selfish ambition and the trouble that accompanies it. Another example. This one uh, is a personal one. Um, since the beginning of the year, as a self-employed contractor, uh, income from work has been zero. And it was a planned break, but it wasn't meant to last this long. In the first several weeks, I enjoyed the freedom and the newfound uh, rhythms, spending a lot more time with my kids. And I soon re realized and I experienced a range of unhealthy emotions, angst, anger, Resentment, sadness, desperation. And it negatively impacted my attitude, my perspectives, and my habits, and resulted in many things, and two of which being a dad who got easily angry and being a husband who was absent and unsupportive. I experienced firsthand how selfishness has the power to ruin some of the most important and priceless things in life, relationships. Going from stewardship to selfishness sounds like we can, we can just will it. We can, we can will against it, I should say. But it can take hold of us. It can grab hold of us if we lose perspective. 
Well, both Ryan Howard and I and all of us, because we're human, we're in rebellion against anyone who tells us how we should live our lives. And it's not an excuse. It's an acknowledgement of our brokenness, our broken hearts. And in today's passage, you would think that the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders, the protectors and stewards of the temple would say to Jesus' coming, thank God, at last. But instead, the same individuals who've spent their lives studying Scripture, notably the commandments, ultimately conspire to murder. They are in rebellion to anyone who tells them how they should live their lives, and even in rebellion to the guy who comes and where all the signs point to Jesus being the Messiah that they were waiting for. We're not so different from the Sanhedrin. If God is the ultimate authority, then he is also the ultimate threat to the way we live our lives. And if we believe that we can live outside God's authority, then it's a lie. And when we try, we will just end up like the Sanhedrin, paranoid, afraid, and holding on to whatever we still have. The world's thinking says, in the words of this parable, if you can kill the son, the vineyard is ours. The strong survive, the weak die, only then you will be free. But Jesus says, you will never be free until you submit to the ultimate authority of the kingdom of God, a kingdom of ultimate justice and peace and righteousness. Oh, but they were, there's that word again, submit, submission. I want to tell us today that we cannot uncouple freedom from submission. I know this doesn't sound like it makes sense because our hearts have been so hardened against it. But think of this. If a toddler freed a goldfish from the confines of its bowl and put it on the couch, is the good goldfish free? If the city removed all the traffic lights and stopped signs, uh, stop signs from our ro roads, would our trip into town feel freer? The answer to both of these, of course, is, is no. There are things that have been put in place to actually help us to uh, actually provide uh, freedom. And as it is with God, he, he built the vineyard. He knows how it works. He says, I know how your heart works because I created it. And Jesus said in John 10, 10, that he has come so that you, me, we can have abundant life. So unless we are submitted to Jesus, we can't be truly free. So there's a claim. There's a claim of ultimate authority by, by which to live, which are the stewardship principles of Jesus. It's an ultimate appeal. And then there's a threat to the way we live our lives in rebellion to anyone who tells us how to live that ultimately lead, can lead to fear, paranoia, and selfishness. But there's a promise. There's a promise of something marvelous. And we see it picked up 
in this uh, reference of verses 10 and 11 of what Jesus is referencing. What about this cornerstone? Well, Jesus is referencing a passage in Isaiah 28. And when in building, the cornerstone is the most expensive, largest, strongest, most important stone of the structure. If the, if the, stone is, if the cornerstone is weak, then the structure is weak and will not last. If the stone is out of square, the structure will be out of square and will not last. In life, applied to life, Jesus is saying the cornerstone is what gives life meaning. And for the Sanhedrin, their cornerstone was their power and popularity. For us, it could be any of those things I mentioned earlier and more, career success, social status, others' approval, beauty, vanity, even our kids' success. If you make any of these things a cornerstone of your life, it will eventually collapse because it's not the real cornerstone. Jesus is saying that he is the chief cornerstone that was rejected, thrown out of the garden by those religious leaders in favor of other cornerstones. But now what about verse 11 and 12? The Lord's doing. Do you see it? Something marvelous. It's hidden in plain sight. Father and son were co-conspirators in a rescue plan marked by grace. I'll say it again. Father and son were co-conspirators in a rescue plan marked by grace. The son took up the crown of thorns and was killed, thrown out of the vineyard, and by his death, he freed others so that they can stay in the garden. We can stay in the garden all because of that. And not only that, we become children of God. And not only that, and I must give credit to Paul in Romans 8, where he says, if we are children, then we are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. We get to share in his glory. We get, get, to, get, get to call God Father when we pray. It's a promise of something marvelous indeed. When we say yes to him, we are rescued by him. Our debt of sin canceled. We become children of God, co-heirs with Christ. All of this on the authority of Jesus himself. In Matthew 18, uh, we see Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And it's on that authority that we get to live, not for ourselves, but for you, and sh but, but for you, God, in sharing your love with others. That's life abundant. That's the mission he calls us to be on. Let's pray. Father God, true authority is held by you alone. There's an invitation by you and it's to a life more abundant than we could ever artificially create or imagine. It is a blessing of blessings, and we don't deserve it. 
It is a rescue plan marked by grace, which is undeserved favor. Father, you together with Jesus co-conspired to rescue us from ourselves, our selfish, broken, broken nature, and bring us into the kingdom, both today and forever. The offer stands. And when we say yes to you, God, you, you, you take us as we are, and then we ultimately experience transforming power. Father, we thank you for that offer. We thank you. And we, I just pray now for those who are, are in this meeting who have said yes to Christ already, days ago or years ago, whatever. Father, won't you, won't you just embolden them and encourage them to these truths this morning? Awaken them if they've become, if they've become dull or dim. Awaken their hearts too with a love that has no match, with a love that convicts and a love that is abundant. And Father, uh, we just pray also for those who do not yet know you or have said yes to you in faith. Father, we, we ask you come near them now. Open their eyes, meet them where they're at, and reveal yourself to them. Father, I pray that these words of your scripture uh, and your, your uh, whispers become crystal clear this morning, even if they're just uh, barely inaudible, barely audible. Father, we ask that your, your truth cuts through everything. We thank you for this truth this morning, and we ask that it just... Uh, immerse itself into our lives and our hearts and remind us that you, Jesus, are the ultimate authority. There's nothing that can replace you, nothing that can, can uh, supplant you. You are the chief cornerstone. We declare that today. Thank you. Amen.